0: Your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 7. We'll be reading in a moment in verse 51. We start this sermon this morning with a picture. Uh, Zach, do you have a picture? There you go. So what's going on here with this fellow? Well, this is Puritan Thomas Smith. He's a painter and had done some business uh, on the seas as well, as you can see by the painting behind him. Why does he have a skull underneath his hand? Well, uh, next next picture, skulls now I'll go back one. Skulls nowadays in Christian circles are kind of no-nos. You know, like if imagine if your kid came home with a tattoo of a skull. You know, you would not be okay with that. But for many years, really up until the last two hundred years, Christians used skulls and other symbols of death to practice a spiritual discipline they referred to as memento mori. And memento mori in Latin means, remember this, you will die. And this is kind of the classic uh, treatment of that idea. I think this is a French painting. I forget who, who did this one. But here you have a flower, a skull, and, uh, and, and a reference to time, an hourglass. So you've got the flower as life. You've got the skull as death and the hourglass is time. And this was a a consistent message communicated within Christendom for a very long time, and they often used a skull to do that. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was fascinated. I have all of Charles Spurgeon's sermons, digital, I can search them, I'm a wealthy man. And uh, 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 Charles Spurgeon was fascinated with this idea of the memento mori. He repeats it, He references it repeatedly throughout his messages, and he said this of this practice. To die daily is the business of Christians. It is greatly wise to talk with our last hours, to make ourselves familiar with the grave. Our venerable forefathers had a queer habit of placing on the dressing table a death's head as a memento mori, either a real skull or else an ornament fashioned in the form of it to remind them of their end. Can you imagine having a skull on your nightstand, forgetting you put it there and waking up at 2 a.m.? Had it there to remind them of their end. Yet, so far as I can gather, they were happy men and women. And nonetheless so, Spurgeon contended, Nonetheless so, because they familiarized themselves with death. A genuine Puritan, perhaps, never lived a day without considering the time when he should put off the garments of clay and enter into rest. And these were the happiest and holiest of people. So up until recently, Memento Mori was actually a Christian discipline led Christians to consider, perhaps even daily, the reality of their impending death. And this reality of their impending death, Spurgeon contends, made them happier and holier. Now our text today, in Acts chapter 7, is a text that was often used throughout church history to do this very thing for the people of God. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to think about dying. Aren't you glad you came? We're going to think about dying using the death of Stephen, which is, among the saints of God in the Scriptures in the New Testament, the most detailed death except for the death of Christ himself. We get a lot of interesting detail in this story, and we will use Stephen's story this morning to think about our own deaths. So beginning in verse 51, let me read. You stiff-necked people, this is Stephen speaking to the Sanhedrin, to those who were in disagreement with him, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did so to you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the Righteous One, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's think about death this morning, using this text, and grow as Spurgeon encourages us, not only more comfortable but more happy and holy as a result of thinking about this ultimate reality that all of us are going to face. Probably one of the basic questions that people have of religion in general is, what happens when I die? You can imagine that being, if you had the, uh, the, the priest and the rabbi and the, let's say, the Hindu at the bar, you know, And uh, the beginning of a joke, you can imagine that if you wanted to get to kind of the the bottom nuts and bolts of what they think about things, you might just say to the priest, to the rabbi, to the Hindu, hey, what happens when I die? What do you think happens when I die? And you would learn a lot by asking that particular question. Well, in this passage, we see the Christian explanation for what happens when we die. And it's in verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he crawled out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So the Bible often describes dying as a separation of the body and the spirit. The King James uses the phrase, he gave up the ghost, which I think we should use more often. Uh, maybe that will be on my tombstone. Ghost, given up. Stephen understands death that way, so that as his body is shutting down, as a consequence of the repeated stones being hurled at his body, Stephen understands that as his body is going to sleep, as it is shutting down, his spirit will continue. And so Stephen calls out to the Lord to receive that which will remain even after his body has been killed. So what happens when I die? The Christian explanation of what happens when you die is that your body stops working and your soul goes somewhere. And one of the interesting pieces of this whole idea is, just so we're clear, the martyrdom of Stephen is, uh, is of course, commendable and, and, and beautiful in a very difficult way. But really, all we're talking about here is the death of a saint. Don't Don't get distracted by the martyrdom in this particular conversation because we're just looking at the things that relate to, to all of us. And some of us will die perhaps a martyr's death and many of us most likely will not. But the idea is this, whether through stones or sickness, whether through violence or a virus, everybody in this room is going to have their body stop working. Everyone in this room is going to die. This is the closest I get to doing the the universal freak out. We're all going to die. Okay, I just wanted to say that. We are all going to die. And when we die, our spirits go somewhere. And this is what Stephen is processing in the midst of his death. So the next question is, when will I die? Well, listen to this. If you ask that question, the overwhelmingly biblical answer to that question is, a lot sooner than you think. That's, that's the way the Bible usually answers that question. What will happen when I die? We've seen the answer to that. When will I die? The Bible would encourage you to think that you are likely to die sooner than you think you will. That's that's the plan. That's the way to approach this issue of death. And that's why I think Spurgeon is contending, in part, that the Puritans were so happy and holy. was They understood this. Of course, back then, life was so much more fragile, even than it is now. Medical interventions were extraordinarily lacking. People died of colds, for instance. You know, and, and so, so the, the idea or the familiarization with death, pretty much everybody in the Puritan age would have washed the bodies of their loved ones and prepared them for burial. Everyone was much more familiar with death. So when will I die? For them, it wasn't difficult to harmonize their personal experience. Listen, it wasn't difficult for them to harmonize their personal experience Bible says. Sometimes we talk about the gap that we experience in all of our faith between what God says and what we see. And in this particular issue, we have a gap to contend with because we don't think about dying imminently, right? We don't, we don't think about impending death. And why don't we? Well, praise God, we live in a much more safe, sterile, perhaps, sanitary uh, environment, Death does not seem to be living before to us like it did to them. But the Bible wants you to believe and think and anticipate. that the truth is, you really could pass at any time. Isaiah 46 says, All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower in the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. And one of the ideas about this memento mori, is th- this reminder of your impending death is 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 that you could not see it coming at all right? that 's an important element to understand in this conversation. You really could not see it coming at all <laughs> the, the, the clocks in, in 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 medieval Europe you know clocks were new right so clocks were, cl- the clocks that would would be kind of the public large clocks in a in a city square for instance often had momentum mori messages on their faces and one of and it would always be in latin and one of them one of them uh, said uh, this hour could be your last can you imagine oak park mall big clock this hour could be your last honestly you know i think there's a lot of value in that and there was a, there was another saying on on one of the clocks that said everyone wounds every all wound and one will kill. And it was essentially saying that that every minute is, taking, is wounding you. Every, every minute you're getting older, you're moving toward death. And then at some moment, just like with Stephen and these stones, one of them is going to be the last one, right? And so the answer to when will I die is honestly a lot quicker than you probably expect. That's the way you should think about it, whether it happens that way or not. And This is also true because, whether you realize it or not, you know, after about 30 years old, time triples, quadruples in speed. Have you seen that meme that says, if you want to know how to make time stand still, just do a plank? Right? Have you ever tried to do a plank in like 30 seconds? Feels like a decade? You know, there's this weird thing that happens, and I don't really even know why, but when you hit a certain age, time just speeds up, and it just goes so much quicker than it ever did before. And so in that respect, death will come sooner than you think because life just has a way of getting getting away from you. There's another piece of this unexpectedness to think about in the story of Stephen, and that is, is that Stephen was far more important than we are. Stephen was far more necessary than we are. In other words, the Lord took a man from the moment in which he was, in every respect that could be seen, essential for that moment. Stephen was important. He was a key contributor to the life of the early church. He was doing really important things. And so one of the things to remember about this idea of impending death is, is there's really nothing that you're about right now that couldn't be immediately interrupted by the Lord's decree for your life to end. If God would uproot Stephen from this earth so so immediately, in spite of all of the significance he had in the moment, he, he could do that to me. He could do that to you. Uh, this is a difficult but important understanding of this impending piece of death, which seems to be key to sanctifying, and that is just like you 're just not important enough to stick around for your own sake. You know that 's just the reality The, the truth is as philosophers talk about um, legacy, and they say that, yeah, you know after you die, some people will remember you, but they will die and you will be no more. Very few of us will be remembered for a series of generations. It will be like we are grass, like we came and we went. This earth will likely, if it continues, not have memory of any of us in a couple of generations. Really, like grass. So that's the question. That's the answer to the question, when will I die? Now, the the most important question that this text addresses is how will I die? Now, I'm sure you're just like me in this respect. You've thought about like, ways you don't want to die, right? I read about Jan Hus and his martyrdom. He's a pre-reformer. I read about his martyrdom burned at the stake. And there's great detail given to his particular death. And I thought, that's, that's not on my list of preferred ways to die. I don't want to die that way. So when we ask the question, how will I die, we typically ask sort of, um, sort of uh, weapon, disease, mishap, We think of the the kind of way, the thing that will kill us. You know, professor, candlestick, library, you know, kind of stuff. Like, like how will we die is usually that kind of deal. What we're not asking is, how will we behave on our deathbed? And honestly, of all of the things we're talking about today, this is the one over which we have most control. And this is the one that we ought to focus on most in terms of honoring God and loving others Not how will I die in terms of stoning or airplane crash or coronavirus, but how will I die? How will I behave on my deathbed? And one thing I want you to really take to heart, as I've been with people over the years as a pastor, as they've spent their last few days on earth, you don't become a better person just because you're on your deathbed. Who you are leaks out in that moment. So this, this notion of being ready always for death involves developing a kind of character that will stand and endure well in the final moments. You won't immediately won't miraculously become non a non-bitter person. You won't <laughs> miraculously become a non-complaining person. Friends, I've been with people who were complaining sorts on their deathbed. And you know what they did as they died? <laughs> they complained. I've, I've been with people who have strong uh, tendencies towards self-pity. And <laughs> you know what they do when they die? That self-pity expresses itself. I, I've, I've been with people who have a strong tendency toward kindness also, and what happens on their deathbed is, is that kindness expresses itself. So whatever you are is what you're going to be, on the day that you die. So answering the question, you know, wh- how will I die? We want to die well. We, 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 we want to we die in a way that expresses love to, our, to, to people in our lives, but also to the Lord. And so Stephen is the stellar model for how to die well. And I'm just going to walk you through, I forget how many there are, four or five kind of pointers that we should think about in terms of how to die well. Well, so let's look back again and read verse 59 again just to refresh our understanding, refresh the text in our minds. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, "Lord Jesus, receive my spirit." And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, "Lord, do not hold this sin against them." And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So let me give you some 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 ideas of what a good, honorable christ-exalting people-loving death looks like first one do your best to die in full assurance of your salvation that's number one do your best to die in full assurance of your salvation the deathbed is not the place to seek assurance it's the place where assurance shines as we've said before you don't have any idea when you'll die and so this issue of knowing that you are indeed Christ's is essential. Death is hard. Death is hard. Assurance sweetens that bitter cup greatly. Assurance sweetens that bitter cup greatly. I lived next to a, a nursing home when I was a very young pastor. Uh, we were maybe you know a block away from a nursing home. And... I was the associate pastor of this of a church there in town, and I got a call from the nursing home saying, there's a woman here who uh, was moved here by her family. She's not close to her home church, and so on and so forth. But she's um, holding on. Uh, it's time for her to pass, but something's just keeping her holding on. And it was Christmas Eve, or maybe the day before Christmas Eve, and they asked me, would you come and talk to this woman? She said she's a Baptist and you look like a Baptist. So will you come and <laughs> will you come and talk to to this woman? And so I did. I don't even remember her name. Sweetest, sweetest woman ever. And I just sat with her for most of a day. And I just said, So tell me about what's tell me about your life. Tell me tell me your story. And and then I said, "So the nurses have been telling me that you, you know, you have um, congestive heart failure, and it's quite severe. And um, they're, you know, they're they're thinking maybe you have some concerns or some fears that's just keeping you from resting, like maybe you 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 should." And she said, "Yeah, I do." And she said, "You know, I, I wake up, I, I catch myself not breathing, and I get scared, and and so on, and kind of going through these adrenaline cycles and so forth, really just holding on." And I, I I I I don't remember her face, but I remember how her hand felt in my hand. It was that smooth, soft old late cold old lady hand, <laughs> you know. And I remember her little bony knuckles and all of all of the marks on her skin. And I held her hand and I said, What do you think is gonna happen when you die? And she said, You know, I I really know, I know that when I die my soul is going to go be with Jesus. And I said, well, tell me how you know that. She said, because he died for me, and he made me a new person many years ago. He changed my heart, and I know, I know, that when I pass, I'm going to be with Jesus. And I'm holding her cold little hand, and I just say, well, then you could wake up in heaven on Christmas Day. And she said, that's true. I said, isn't that amazing? She said, yeah, it is. And so I went home and had dinner, Aunt had dinner ready, and we got up on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, I don't remember, and the nursing home called me and let me know that she had passed peacefully in her sleep. Stephen is passing. The stones are piling on and his body can't take much more he has, in the midst of all the bitterness of this death, the sweetness to know that the Lord Jesus will receive his spirit when his body goes to sleep. When he says, Jesus receive my spirit, something told me, you know, the preacher, Spidey it senses, told me, look up the Greek word on that. So I did. What's the word for receive? It's the word, uh, I think it's the word "dekomai," And it but but the, the, what the word means is so much more important and how it's used in the Bible is so much more important. Jesus received my spirit. The word receive is, is Jesus or anyone else opening their door to a weary traveler. There's a moment in Scripture where Jesus says, if you've received any of these in my name, you've received me. There's a moment where Jesus tells the disciples to go into the cities and see if they receive you. And so this moment here is Stephen saying, I'm almost done with this long journey, and I have almost reached your door. Now, Lord Jesus, I'm knocking on the door, and I know you're going to let me in to your glorious home where I will live with you forever. And, of course, travel was so difficult and dangerous, and honestly, like kind of psychologically triggering back then, Almost all ancient cultures had some sort of welcome ceremony just to allow uh, almost a, a ritualized decompression that would happen when you got in the door. So like in, in Asia, there's usually like a tea ceremony or something like that. and it's this, it's this way of saying to the weary traveler, you're safe and you're welcome and you're, you're, you're where you've reached your destination. And of course, in the, uh, in the Bible times, one of those ceremonies was just foot-washing. It had a practical piece, but it also had the the piece of now you can get off of your feet and you can be vulnerable and I'm going to take care of you. And so when the Bible says that when we die, Christians, when we pass after this long journey and death itself can be a really hard journey, it could be a really bitter journey. But there's this moment for every Christian where after that journey is done, we arrive at the doorstep of Jesus and he opens his door to this mansion that he's prepared for us. And he has this ceremony, this, this ritual, this plan to wipe all the tears from your eyes and to bind up all of your wounds and to say, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. And that's what Stephen's looking at right now. And that makes this terrible death somehow more manageable. Not somehow, obviously more manageable. Wesley, uh, you know, my son Wes, he has this, this he has millions of weird ideas. But one of his weird ideas that I think is true is that on a long road trip, the last hour doesn't count. So the last hour before you get where you're going doesn't count. So if it's a 15-hour drive, in Wes's mind, it's a 14-hour drive. And this is because the last hour, you can kind of satisfy your impatience with expectation. So you you can occupy yourself for the last hour with just expectation that you're going to arrive at your destination and friends death is your last hour and if you know that you're Christ's, then that last hour can be much better it it, so so do your best i won't belabor that point any longer do your best to die in full assurance of your salvation number two do your best to die in service to the lord Back in chapter 6, where we learn about Stephen, in verse 8, it says that Stephen was full of grace and power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Uh, This service of Stephen wound up getting him killed, to be sure. But this service of Stephen also made his death so much more meaningful. God, if you serve the Lord actively in your life, Godkins gets to preach two messages to everybody else in your life that knows you and to the heavens. He gets to preach two messages. And the first one is, I'm using sinners to accomplish my glorious work. So when, when God uses you in service, he gets to proclaim to the world through you, I'm using people who were my enemies and are now my willing tools to accomplish my purposes. So that's message number one. But then if you keep serving and you keep serving and you keep serving like Stephen did, And then he pulls you out of the field. He uproots you and takes you home. He gets to preach a second message, and that is, and none of these people are so important to the work that I do that I wouldn't rather have them personally with me in my presence. And so he communicates to the world, I use people to accomplish my purposes, but I don't use them as slaves. I love them. I want to be with them. And I will pull somebody out right in the middle of an extremely important mission like Stephen was on. I'll pull somebody out right then if I choose to do so. Because I don't need them, and that's why I can love them. So if you will die serving the Lord, you will get to preach two beautiful messages to the world. Number one, God uses anybody. And number two, God isn't a slave driver. He's a father. He's given us all tasks to accomplish but he also loves us and wants to be with us. You know, Stephen was a deacon, and this reminds me of just that idea that, uh, related to assurance, that when we serve well, we have, we have an additional kind of assurance that shows up. First uh, Timothy three thirteen is the conclusion statement uh, regarding deacon qualifications. And Paul just says this about deacons, but I think it's good for all of us. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So some of these are building on each other. It's like, how do you get assurance? Well, know the gospel, trust the gospel, believe that God's word is greater than your heart. Yes, but do something with what you know. Serve others, love others, pour out your life. And in pouring out your life, you will gain great assurance. Number three. Do your best to die swinging your sword. Uh, I was in Casper, Wyoming last week for a day and a half. Got to spend some time with one of my, a couple of my friends. And one evening, uh, one of my friends named Aaron and I were sitting around his fire pit. And he got to tell me the story that I only knew a little about that had happened a year before in which one of his childhood friends was killed by a grizzly bear. You can look up the story. Uh, the, the guy's name was Mark Uptain, and he was an elder at his church in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and uh, just a man's man. He, he, he did the uh, Celebrate Recovery ministry at his church. Had, I think, five kids. The youngest one was 12 years old or so. And Mark had a, a business, a small business, but on the side, he did some professional uh, guiding as well. And so he was guiding a hunt, for a man, for a young man from Florida, uh, the young man took an elk the night before with kind of a bad shot with a crossbow, and uh, they couldn't find the elk. And so they came back the next day and found the elk. Uh, began to gut the elk and process it, and a, a grizzly sow ran right up onto both of them, the young man first. Mark, the guide, got the grizzly's attention. Grizzly engaged him, and. Through, honestly, an epic battle, Mark fended off the grizzly. My friend said that when he went to the corner to see his body, he had fang marks on his fists. From punching this grizzly over and over again. His bear, his bear spray can was discharged fully. The bear fleed, fled the scene. And Mark, my friend just says that Mark, he, he just knows, was like, man. He really got me good, and he started walking to his horse and just collapsed dead. Both of his femoral arteries were, were ripped open by the bear. About a year before, no one knew this, Mark was very relatively new Christian. Relatively, probably, you know, not, not that new. But he had, he had, without telling anyone, taken out an extremely generous life insurance policy And named his wife a beneficiary and didn't tell anybody. And so I'm sitting with my friend Aaron and we're talking about this. And I said, okay, this is tragic, I understand. But I would like to say that any man I know would probably welcome the chance to go out punching a grizzly bear and making your wife a millionaire. (laughs) It's like, there are better ways to die than other ways. They're not all equal. And and, and there's this something just beautiful and heroic about the way this man went out. He saved his friend. He left his wife a fortune, and he's got grisly teeth marks on his fists. Like, yes. Stephen goes out the same way, swinging his sword. (laughs) He says in the most gracious but guts-filled statement, Lord Jesus, the people who are stoning me don't think you're Lord. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen is not content to stop fighting the works of the devil simply because he has been disabled with a few well-placed stones. He is going to keep preaching the gospel all the way to the end with every bit of his energy. He's going to keep punching that bear. He's just going to keep at it over and over and over again. And he's also not willing to let Satan have any place in Stephen's own heart. He doesn't want any bitterness in his heart when he dies. And so he prays, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And also in that prayer, he's saying, you know what else? I don't want the devil to have any claim over these people. I I don't want them Even though they're killing me, I don't want them to walk in the kingdom of darkness. Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And you know what happens? God answers that prayer, at least partially, but magnificently, by redeeming the man who was holding the coats. And so Stephen's life is cut short, we would think, and his work is certainly left unfinished. But who was Stephen? What was he about? Well, he came into being as... Uh, in ministry to care for Hellenistic widows. He, he came in, he emerged onto the scene of ministry to care for the Greek-speaking people. And who is saved as a consequence of Stephen's prayer or related to Stephen's prayer is Saul, the Apostle Paul. Who is the Apostle Paul a minister to? The Gentiles. This man died well. He not only fought the bear till the very end, but he left the world a much richer place. God really, really used his faith. This r- reminds me of a story about Jan Hus, who I said earlier was burned to death at the stake. Hus' is the last, name. Hus's last name means goose. And, and he said, rep- reportedly, all of these things get a little murky, but reportedly said something to the extent before they burned him. Today you will roast a goose. But in a hundred years, a swan will rise up that you will not silence. And Martin Luther, a hundred years later, nailed the 95 theses to the door. Stephen swung his sword to the very end. Next one, do your best to die in fellowship with the saints. You're going to be so much more at ease if you have brothers and sisters in Christ surrounding you in your death, and I'll explain why. Look at verse eight, or chapter 8, verse 2. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. What does that mean? Well, Stephen was a churchman. He died, he lived and died in service to the church, so that when he died, the people of God took care of his affairs. There is no way any of us will die with all of our affairs in order. There's just not a way to do that. It's just not possible. But look at this beautiful reality that when you die within the, saint, within the community of the saints, I'll take care of the stuff that you couldn't take care of. This is expressed here by them burying Stephen. But we know that that's, that's, that's really just a, a picture of the overall way that the church would care for one of their own after they had passed. So it's, it's incredible that for those that are part of a local church, We can die. Here's the crazy thing. We can die knowing that God will take our soul and that our brothers will take care of our stuff. They'll they'll take care of what needs to be taken care of. People will step in. Our brothers and sisters in Christ will step in and care for us. So the Christian, in this really interesting way, gets to die in total confidence in every sense. My heavenly future is secure, but the future that I'm leaving behind when I leave this earth my earthly affairs and so forth—that's all going to be handled by brothers and sisters who love me. It's pretty awesome. And finally, do your best to see the Savior. Do your best to see, see the Savior. This whole text is is really accented with Stephen's clear view of Jesus. Right? Stephen sees Jesus. He knows Jesus is reigning over all of this. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. You know, it would be a really big mistake to end this sermon without talking about Jesus' death. Because his death is the pattern that Stephen's death followed. Right? Je- Jesus himself said, Lord, receive my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. But Jesus died to save Stephen in the first place and to make the assurance that he had and the mission that he had and the clarity that he had, and the fight that he had to make all of that possible, Jesus, the one person who's ever lived who did not deserve to taste death, and who did not honestly have to die, gave up himself as an offering to redeem all those who would be saved in the future. And he, Jesus, has made it possible for us to look death in the eye, to say, you could come up on me a lot quicker than I realize. And I don't have a lot of control or a lot of say over how that all goes down. But I do know this. Because you have saved me, I can die well. I I can die well. Now, as I said at the beginning, all of this happens so unexpectedly that we need to be doing these things every day. We need to be doing these things now. We won't necessarily have warning when we're supposed to put on these awesome behaviors. These are behaviors that we need to put on now. We need to serve the Lord now. We need to seek the full assurance of our salvation now. We need to swing the sword now. We need to stay in fellowship with the saints now. And we need to do our best to see Jesus now. I think the key to dying well is also the key to living well. And that is to be able to look beyond that which is seen to that which is unseen to be able to look past the temporary and to see the eternal. And that's something we have the opportunity to practice every day so long as we have a day ahead of us. Let me conclude by reading Psalm 31. This is the psalm that Stephen quotes, that Jesus quotes in their death. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me and a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. Does anyone taste the irony of a man being stoned to death, calling out for the rock of Jesus to receive his spirit? Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Stones may kill, but Christ, the cornerstone, the living rock, will save me. Let me pray. Gracious God, we praise you for your exceeding kindness, not only to create us and redeem us, but, Lord, also to allow us to march toward the final enemy in assurance. And Lord, we pray for those that don't know you, who haven't been transformed by you, because, Lord, your word says that for those that have not been redeemed, whom you have not saved, Lord, they will die one time. That's the physical death. And then they will experience a second death, which is eternal separation from you. Hell. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do a work in the hearts of those either in this room or in our neighborhoods, in our families, God. It is hard enough to die once. And that death is small and short and light and momentary compared to the eternal death that awaits those who have not walked with you have not put their faith in you so we ask god that you would do a work to allow more and more people in our neighborhood in our city and our families be redeemed and in their redemption lord they inherit all of these great treasures that we've discussed today thank you lord for your care and goodness to us in jesus name we pray amen